Hello and welcome everybody to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And today uh, we are going to do something that has become kind of an annual tradition on the show. The Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music begins its 2013 season this week here in Santa Cruz, CA. And that is a golden opportunity to meet with and talk to some of the world-renowned composers and performers who roll into town for a couple of weeks of concerts, workshops, and other events. Uh, on today's show, I'm going to be devoting most of the hour to an interview with the composer Kevin Putz. He is, uh, I guess you could say, a favorite son of the Cabrillo Festival, who is coming back this year for, I think, his eighth visit. Over the years he has been coming to the festival, Kevin's work has been growing in stature and renown worldwide. And just this past year, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Music. At this year's festival, he is going to be premiering his flute concerto with the young flute virtuoso Adam Walker as the featured soloist. That performance is going to take place opening night at the Cabrillo Festival on Friday, August 2nd. Uh, The work, the concerto, has a great backstory, which you're going to hear in the hour ahead. And we're also going to get some really nice insights into Kevin's whole relationship to music and composition. And then uh, a little later in the show, I'm going to speak to another of the musicians whose work is being featured on opening night of the festival. That is Derek Burmel, a very well-known clarinetist and composer who will be conducting his orchestral work, Dust Dances, which is uh, based on traditional music from Ghana and Africa. And we're going to hear Derek talking about that. But first, a conversation with the composer Kevin Putz. Well, Kevin, you have a new work, a brand new work, premiering at the Cabrillo Festival this year. It's your flute concerto. And my first question is, how did you come up with that name? <laughs> yeah, it's a brilliant name. Well, I came up with that name because I couldn't think of anything else. And I feel it's sort of phony to assign a title to a piece, you know, after the fact. But, you know, what happens when you give a title a specific um, image or something, then that's all the audience thinks about. And that is not something I wanted. There's sort of a lot of different things in the piece, and I, I wanted to have a more general title to represent the piece. The piece has a, an interesting origin, and I wonder if that focused your feelings about the, the kind of sound that you wanted. This was a commission, but not your typical commission. Right. <laughs> well, uh, Joe and, and Betty Hirsch are really wonderful friends of the festival um, who have been attending for several years. And I met them first in 2002 when Marin Alsop uh, introduced me at the festival with my second symphony. And Joe... Um, had the opportunity to sit in the orchestra among the musicians, and I think that that had some impact on his appreciation for that particular piece. Oh, um, where did you put him? Oh, I didn't put him. I, I, <laughs> I mean, where I did they put him? There. I'm not sure where they put him. Probably in the, in the strings or behind the strings or something. I didn't know they did that. They did that. Yeah, they do that um, for, <laughs> for patrons, I think. And um, and it really is a different experience. In fact, I think it's sort of a not a, actually a realistic experience because I've done it. Actually, I've sat on the stage while an orchestra played one of my pieces um, because I was hosting something. And you only hear the, the instruments around you. And so it's very um, it's very misleading, actually. Uh, you know, the piece sounds very different in the hall. But anyway, Joe really loved that second symphony. They both did. Joe and Betty both did. And they, they tell me they play a recording of it all the time at home. And so a couple of years ago, Betty secretly went to Alan Primack, the executive director of the festival, and, and said, you know, I want to commission this piece from Kevin. It would be an orchestra piece, and it would be for Joe's uh, 75th birthday, but we got to keep it quiet 
I don't want to spill the beans here. It's a massive surprise, serious planning. Right, right. It's a big surprise. It's, a, it's really an incredible gift to give somebody, really. Um, and, and then, totally coincidentally, um, Joe went to Ellen, I think, around the same time, maybe a little bit later, and, and said, I want to commission a chamber piece from Kevin for our 35th wedding anniversary uh, to be played at the uh, Music in the Mountains concert. And I don't want Betty to know about it, so let's keep it quiet. Don't even tell Kevin right now. Just, you know. But anyway, so it was really touching that they both had this idea to commission a piece from me. And so at, at, at roughly the same time, Kevin, they secretly came to the festival individually and each wanted to commission a piece for the other, composed by you. That's right, that's right. <laughs> and I, Ellen Primet called me about it, and, and I said, well, I, I was sort of overwhelmed um, with a lot of projects, and, and I was, of course, very touched by, by this uh, on both, from, from both of them. Um, but I said, I wonder if maybe we could do one piece. Um, and I know that Betty played the flute in uh, school at the Eastman School of Music a long time ago, and so I thought, well, I'd never written a flute concerto, so why not a flute concerto? And that would be an orchestra piece, and it would also include the flute. I think actually Joe was think- thinking of including the flute in the chamber piece that he wanted to commission. So I thought that would work well. And then Marin uh, was Marin Alsop. Marin was yes very uh, excited director. about the idea, and she had a, the perfect flutist in mind. She she conducts the London Symphony uh, quite often, and uh, Adam Walker is this young. He won the post of principal flute of the London Symphony at the age of 21, so he's just sort of an amazing young performer. And uh, and so so, I'm, so I wrote the piece for him. And it will be performed uh, on opening night this year, August 2nd. So how does it feel to be charged with that kind of a uh, responsibility, two people who really care for each other and have for a long time, <laughs> making well, a gift of your work? It is. It is honestly. It is a lot of pressure because um, you know you feel somewhat um, compelled to write something that you think that they will like based on the music that you know they like, um, and and that can be a kind of a difficult place to be in creatively. Um, so I tried to just write something that you know just to do what I always do and and just write something that I feel moved by or that I feel is is my best work, and that hopefully they will then come to the piece and like it themselves. But, you know, they are so excited about this premiere, and they haven't heard the piece yet, and, you know, they've invited 150 family members, and it's just, you know, it is a lot, honestly, it is a lot of pressure. I want them to like it. I want them to feel like it was a worthy um, project for them and for, for them to commission. And um, But, you know, really, once you get involved in composing, it becomes all about making good decisions creatively and, you know, to make the piece work. And you sort of forget about the other things. Now that the piece is finished, now I'm really nervous. About, <laughs> oh, you know, the first rehearsal or the second, I think they're going to, Joe and Betty are going to attend the second rehearsal, and I'm, I'm just hoping that they'll, that they'll like it. Um, it's interesting that composition at this point in history is still driven to some extent by that kind of patronage and personal request and that, of course, is how it's funded, too, uh, a lot of the time, just as it has been for centuries. It really is interesting. And, and honestly, a lot of my work has, has come from, from, from patrons like Joe and Betty. In fact, my Symphony Number no. 4 
was commissioned by another Cabrillo patron, um, Howard Hansen, for his wife Carrie, uh, my symphony number four, a few years back. Um, he commissioned that piece as a gift to his wife Carrie. And actually that that piece is um, just coming out now on a CD with Marin Alsop conducting the Baltimore Symphony. And, and it's going to be released at the... Um, at opening night, and I'll be signing CDs, and Howard will be there too. Carrie, sadly, uh, passed away this year, but it's—I think it's a—it's a nice thing that we can release the CD, and that the piece will live on like this in a recording. But yeah, a lot of a lot of my work really does come from—it's you know people rather than organizations who decide. Okay, let's say he's doing well. Let's commission him. It's more about a person who feels something personal, feel some kind of personal attachment to my work, and then decides to, they would like to pay for a commission. And, and I, it's, it's, it's interesting that a lot of my work has come through that kind of uh, situation. But it can be a lot of pressure, um, because you feel, like I said, you feel like you, you want to make them, them happy, and that can, that can be a dangerous kind of place to be in. Do you have any clue, Kevin, as to what it is these people see, or hear, I should say, in your work? Um, makes them so deeply invested in it that they would commission a piece? Well, I don't exactly know. Um, <laughs> I think if you start to try to define your work, it, um, you, it loses something. Mm. And I know when I'm doing work that feels like my best work, that's the most personal and that comes from my heart and is also driven by my intellect and it's sort of bal- a balance between those two things. You know, I think if anything, I don't feel afraid to go as far as I want in any stylistic direction. I don't, I'm not afraid to wear my heart on my sleeve, you know. I mean, there's, there will be some backlash, you know, some critics will not be, you know, supportive of that. And um, I may not be the, the coolest, hippest, you know, <laughs> uh, cutting edge kind of guy, but I don't, I don't really think that way. You know, I, I know the music that I love, and I love it deeply. And my music comes from my love of that music. You know, it's sort of it's it's a reflection of my appreciation for um, for for, the, for great music. Um, and so maybe this that uh, I feel like when I compose, I'm not self-conscious, and that may be um, that may be what they're responding to—a sort of honesty that maybe communicates directly to them. I'm, but I, I've, they, you'd have to ask them. Actually, I'm not really exactly sure. I think I know an example of what you're talking about, and it is from the flute concerto, uh, the new work. It's this melody that opens the piece, and that, I understand, is one that has been um, sounding in your brain for for decades, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote this melody when I was in school, and I it was a time when I was trying to work in a kind of post-minimalist style, and I used the melody, it was a piece for cello and piano, and I used the melody in a kind of repetitive way, where the melody would gradually be built, which is the way a lot of minimalist pieces work, that a pattern is, is gradually built by adding notes to it until it becomes complete. But the melody is nothing like your typical, you know, Steve Reich piece or... or um, Philip Glass? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it doesn't... It's sounds very, I guess, I don't know what you'd say, it sounds sort of wholesome American, I don't know. Well, could I have your permission to play a little clip of you actually playing this on piano? Oh, on my out-of-tune piano, sure, go ahead. On your out-of-tune piano, and also via Skype, so everybody has to be prepared for some 
not great audio here, but it will give them a sense of what this melody sounds like. And yeah, I would never have said minimalism. I would have said, "Wow, that's just so sweet." Yeah, well, it, yeah. I mean, I'm I, I like music that's sweet. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I love Mozart. You know, Mozart's sort of at the top of the the whole pile for me. Um, you know, I'm a sap. I mean, I like you know, I like '80s pop tunes, and I like. I don't even get me started, but but yeah, the <laughs> the tune. Um, it's funny because it's sort of. How, when was I a student? Like 1995, maybe I wrote that tune. Now it's almost 20 years later. And now I'm working in a different way. You know, my approach to writing is different, and I can give that melody the context that it really deserves without uh, embarrassment, I think. Um, and and, so, and I, so it really does sort of... I, I present the, the melody right at the start of the piece. Um, I don't overdevelop it. Actually, um, what I love about a lot of pieces, um, especially actually Mozart, uh, he does something really beautiful, but he doesn't overdo it. You know, he does it once, and you want to hear it again. But, Absolutely. And, yeah, and it's just it takes restraint to do that. But um, the the presentation of this melody in the first movement, it returns with a little variation, but it's not like the flute just sort of takes it and develops it and does all these things with it. It's sort of presented in a in a kind of expositional way, and it's left alone. The first movement is not a huge uh, dramatic statement in the piece. Um, and and that makes it unusual when you you know put it in the context of the concerto tradition. Usually the first movement is a, is a very big statement. The second is maybe equally long. Um, and then the third is short. Um, my third movement is, is pretty substantial, actually. Um, you know, you just mentioned something that I, I think of as one of the distinguishing characteristics uh, between, say, pop music and, I'll just use that broad term, classical, and that is that when pop musicians find a hook, they'll repeat it, uh, yeah. and people who love to hear it will hear it over and over again. When you guys discover a tantalizing or absolutely gorgeous melody, you might just state it once in the entire piece, which leaves me longing for more, i got to tell you. Maybe I'm conditioned by pop music. Well... Yeah, I think so, but it makes you want to come back and listen to it. And, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, Tchaikovsky does that too. There's the second, the slow movement of one of his symphonies. I'm so I always forget. I think it's his fourth symphony, um, but it's just gorgeous melody, and you know, you just want to hear it again. And so you're waiting through the whole movement for it to turn, <laughs> and you're pretty sure it's going to because that's the way the structure was set up back then. Um, and um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, it's a it's a different aesthetic than than the approach to pop music, which is that you just sort of give give everything you can um my my desire is for the listener to be searching for the place of clarity where it's appropriate for the melody to return and then they can hear it again but it's not a matter of just repeating it incessantly right right uh you mentioned mozart and your admiration for his composition you actually give a big nod to him in the second movement of this flute concerto yeah, it's a very strange process composing a piece, and you know, I don't really plan ahead very much. Um, I knew I wanted to begin the, the whole concerto with this melody that we we talked about, but when I got to the second movement, um, you know, I've been I've been listening to the second movement of Mozart's uh, piano concerto in C major, number twenty-one, 
and it's just something that I find magical, and I don't use that term lightly. I mean, I really, you can look at the elements of it on the page. I can study the piece, and I can see, okay, he uses the winds the way he usually uses the winds, the piano the way, you know, normally would use the piano in a slow movement with related to the strings, but there's something about the sound of this of this piece that just um, does something that you can't quantify and is greater than some of its parts. And so um, I just started playing the music of that Mozart movement in my own way, <laughs> in my own sound world, kind of. Um, and it's it's hard to exactly what it is I did. I don't know, is it like a trope? Is that what you call it? Or, you know, it, but you hear the elements of the Mozart, they're all there, but kind of clothed in my own harmonic language. Um, and then I go a different direction. I mean, I take it a sort of different place than you would maybe expect. It gets more, there's more of a dramatic kind of upheaval in the, toward the middle of the movement, um, where the, as the Mozart stays pretty serene throughout. Um, but it's just a, it's a kind of tough situation to, to revere a, a composer's work so much, especially one who's <laughs> been dead for so long, you know, and uh, and and really not be able to get away from it. And in fact, I've always thought, I wonder if there's some way that I could reflect in my own writing my my love of this music, um, but still have it be fresh and contemporary. And so that's something I struggle I struggle with, and I haven't really. Um, entirely gotten there. Well, in this piece, uh, you do echo some elements uh, from the Mozart Piano Concerto, and I just want to play a representative passage from that. People will recognize it almost certainly. Yeah. So that's just a little bit of uh, Mozart's Piano Concerto Number Twenty One, and also nicknamed Alvira, Alvira Madigan, I guess is how you pronounce it. Alvira Madigan was uh, a film in the I think the seventies or maybe the sixties. Uh, they employed that movement as the soundtrack, and so it became subtitled, became nicknamed that for some strange reason. So, so you said it's it, it's been a struggle or it's been a problem uh, for you to. Try to do something with your love of a composer like Mozart and yet keep it fresh. Well, isn't that exactly what you're doing in this piece? I guess it is what I'm doing in this piece, but it's not like you would say my entire style and every piece of mine, you know, you say, ah, yes, I can see how, how he loves Mozart. You know, I, I don't think that's true at all. In fact, this Symphony Number no. 4 that was also commissioned, uh, you know, through Cabrillo, I don't think anybody would hear that in the slightest bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was noticing earlier how... It, interesting it was to hear you sound a little bit embarrassed or apologetic about being a heartfelt composer, about some sentimentality. I know that word has some kind of bad connotations, and and I wonder why. Well, because of the way um, music went in the, throughout the last century, that it became so completely um, and rigorously controlled by, uh, by serial methods, and um, it became... You know, after the Second World War, I think it was very difficult for people to, to imagine a way to write heartfelt music again. And so, 
we've kind of come back from that. Oh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of that. I thought, you know, sometime in the 20th century, it became very formal. People started tearing apart all of the traditional structures and experimenting. And, you know, we got 12-tone music and things like that. I never thought that it might have been, it might have been a reaction to the horrors of war itself. I, I think in a lot of ways it was, you know, that, that after such atrocities, you know, how can you write sunny music or romantic music? Um, but, I, you know, I grew up in a time without those things really in the air, that those kind of horrors were not really in the air. They still exist, they very much still exist. Horrible atrocities happen all the time. But for me, music is a kind of a, a sanctuary, you know, where I can say the things I want to say, I can be as... Um, as uh, spiritual and as kind of heartfelt as I as I need to be without apology, and it's not you know it hasn't always been easy. You know you you feel inclined to write a certain way so that your colleagues will maybe support you, um, and certainly there are a lot of musicians and conductors who who are looking for a certain kind of thing. You know when they it's not like they don't love Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and Sibelius, but when they when they commission new new music, they have a very specific thing that they want, and you can figure out what that is, and you can imitate it if you want. But um, for me, I've just said no. <laughs> I will write the music that I feel, and then hopefully there will be people who who support it. And Marin Alsop is one of those people. In fact, maybe the foremost uh, conductor and musician who believes in in my voice, and she understands I'm doing something that's very honest. That may not be. Um, universally popular at this time in, in, in music history, but that I'm saying this is this is the music I want to write, and you know it's a really tough situation to be in because let's say I play my music for a group of composers, I feel self-conscious because they're all going to think, oh gosh, this guy's so gushy, and you know. <laughs> but then if I but then if I have a piece programmed on a subscription orchestra concert, then I'm going to feel self-conscious because the audience is going to think, oh god, this stuff is so weird compared to the Beethoven. You know, so it's like I can't really, there's no place for me. Um, and actually, Cabrillo is a great place for me. I feel very, very warmly received at Cabrillo. So it's kind of a, a nice place for me to be. Well, let's not give the false impression, though, that you're an outcast among composers. I mean, among other things, you just got yourself a Pulitzer last year. Yeah, that was kind of a surprise to me, honestly. You know, I wrote my first opera, uh, Silent Night, which is a um, is an adaptation um, by a librarist, Mark Campbell, of um, the film Joya Noël, uh, which is a French film about the uh, Christmas Eve truce of 1914, uh, the First World War. The soldiers spontaneously got out of their trenches and had parties at various places along the front, and then, of course, it became very difficult to resume the war the next day. Um, but uh, it's a piece that is like any of my other pieces, stylistically. You know, I, I went where I needed to go uh, to... to bring the story to life, and the um, artistic director of uh, Minnesota Opera suggested that I submit the piece for the Pulitzer Prize, and I said, oh, this is, I said, oh, this, this has no chance to win that, because I figured, you know, my music is just not the kind of music that's going to win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, that doesn't say anything about, like, the craft of it or the quality of it, which I, of course, try very hard to keep at a very high level, but... Just the style, I just thought, ah, it's not the kind of thing that a panel of judges is going gonna, is gonna to go for. So it really was. You know, when I got the phone call from the, um, well, actually it was from the Associated Press, 
because the Pulitzer Prize Committee doesn't call you. Um, it was really a sh- it really was a shock and and really a very welcome shock. <laughs> wow, wow, yeah, it's certainly is it the greatest sort of establishment recognition a composer can get in the U.S. I think probably it is. Um, you know, when I, I met with John Corleano uh, a little bit after I'd won, and he said, "You won the big one." <laughs> so right. I guess right. if he said that, then it must be. Uh, it, it definitely did feel that way to me. Um, and you know, the the composers who I admire so much who have won it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it really does mean something to me to be in, in the in the uh, list with composers like like John Corleano or my teacher Jacob Druckmann or Christopher Rouse or John Adams and Jennifer Higdon, who had won it just a couple of years before. So it really is, it, it did really mean something to me. Yeah, I'd like to play just a little bit of that opera, Silent Night, the one that won last year's uh, Pulitzer, the 2012 Pulitzer for music. And you can maybe set the stage for us, but I'm going to play a, a bit near the end of Act One. And again, this is World War One trench warfare, and uh, there are Scottish, French, and German troops. And uh, you want to tell us more about this scene? This is really the kind of the crux of the opera. It's what the opera is about, you know, the moment when the truce actually occurs and the French uh, lieutenant has tentatively waved a white flag and come onto the stage and the German lieutenant has come out as well as a professional tenor named Nikolaus Sprink, who is on the German side. He's the one who started singing Christmas carols and sort of got everybody out of their trenches to begin with. And the interesting thing about opera is that you can have him translating for uh, the Scottish soldier uh, who, is, who is saying that, you know, we're clearly exhausted, why don't we have a truce for just one night, um, and tomorrow the ceasefire is over. And so Nikolaus Sprink, who is a professional tenor, so of course speaks many languages, is translating um, for the French lieutenant. So he's, he's singing in French a few beats later than uh, the Scottish singer. Good evening, Lieutenant. Do you speak English? I do. Hans Maulsprink. A little. Bonsoir. Do you speak English? No. I can translate. Gentlemen. Monsieur. I think you'll believe Monsieur, I come that this war will not be just a little sample there from the opera Silent Night by the composer Kevin Putz, who's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on 88.9 KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, And Kevin's uh, new work, his uh, flute concerto, is premiering at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music this coming Friday, August 2nd, uh, which is the occasion for this interview. Uh, I believe I remember correctly that you set out originally uh, as a musician to be a uh, concert pianist. Well, I... I played piano a lot when I was young and then got into composing. Um, I had a teacher in Michigan in a very small town called Alma where I grew up, um, and she heard me improvising before a lesson and asked me what that was, and I said, oh, I'm just making it up. And 
she thought that was of some note that I was doing that. So she uh, started assigning little com- composition assignment, you know, pieces for me to write, and I got into it that way. But uh, yeah, I always played the piano. That was sort of the main thing I did. And um, when I went to the Eastman School of Music, I majored in composition, but I studied piano very seriously. And really, I was really more attracted to playing the piano, I think just because I was so impressed by the other students. And, you know, they were had started younger than I had, and they were from big cities where they had studied with teachers that pushed them a lot. And so I I learned from them. I learned how to practice, and I was kind of dazzled by them. And so I spent a lot of my undergrad years um, playing the piano and practicing, you know, big concertos and accompanying um, various musicians, playing in the new music ensemble. And I didn't write that much music. I found it very difficult to write music because I didn't know exactly who I was. I didn't. I liked so many different things. You know, I was interested in very abstract music, like from the Greek composer Zanakis and from Polish composer uh, Ludoslawski. And um, also, when I heard John Adams, I was just floored. I, the first piece I heard was the Chairman Dances. Now that's from so, Nixon in China. From right? Nixon in China, yeah. The, or, the school orchestra played it, and I was just, you know, like looking around at everybody, you know, it's just amazing, you know, <laughs> so beautiful, and it's so orchestrated so beautifully, and, and everybody else said, yeah, John Adams, you know, they'd all heard it, they'd all been to composition camps, you know, in, in high school, and I was just trying to figure out who I was, and I and it was, um, whereas I could always practice the piano, that was something that you could just do, with the music's in front of you, you just practice, but composing was something that took a little longer for me to uh, work out, you know, what I wanted to be, the kind of music I wanted to write, what my voice was, and I think it's a lifelong um, pursuit, really. It's not something that you work out when you're young and they say, okay, that's it, I'm going to write in this style till I'm 85. You know, I I think the only way to stay interested in composing is to always be evolving and to be listening to new things, and I'm certainly that's the way I am. Were there mentors say, at Eastman, or, or friends who said, whoa, you know, composition, that's a hard road to go. It's... No, that's the weird thing about conservatories. Nobody tells you how crazy it is to, <laughs> you know, to go into any field of music, period. I played for a violinist at Yale, because I studied there for my master's, and so I was playing for a violinist, and the violin teacher said, well, I want to be a composer. You know, I don't want to be a pianist. It's crazy, you know. So he, but I think he's like the only person who ever told me that. Mm, mm. It was just something for me, you know, there are a lot of pianists and there are a lot of wonderful pianists. And the time it takes just to practice for hours and hours and hours, I, I thought was something that wasn't, it is creative, definitely creative, especially the, the best pianists, the best musicians, but not creative enough for me. I, I like the idea of not knowing what I'm going to do, you know, that I take on a commission and I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. It's very exciting. Um, and it's something, I think that was, honestly, that was where I made the decision. Mm. That I just thought, this is more exciting to me. And I didn't really have any idea how you made a career out of it. My teacher, Joseph Schwantner, at uh, at Eastman, when I was a sophomore, was telling me about getting repeat performances and, you know, oh, don't write that, you know, don't don't put four flutes in the piece or you'll never have a performance. And I just didn't think about any of those things. I said, why, why do you want to have an repeat performances. I just want to hear the piece once. And, you know, I just wasn't, uh, at least I was pretty naive. I, I think a lot of my students, my younger students, have are a lot more savvy and they have an idea of how one makes a career as a composer. But when I was in my teens and 
20s, early 20s, I had no idea. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you've made it, though. And that's, I got to say, that the odds are, are probably against it, you know, for anybody. Well, I guess that's true. It, it is uh, a lot of work to, to be a composer. Um, you know, I made this reference to how much time it takes to practice the piano, but it takes hours and hours and hours to compose a piece and to prepare the score in the way that it needs to be prepared and to think about the little things that each player needs to, 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 to know. You know, how is a passage phrased? Um, how is it articulated? Um, it really is a ton of, of work, and especially to write something big like an orchestra piece or an opera. Um, I think a lot of composers, they think they want to be composers, but a lot of young composers, they think they want to go into composition. But once they really see how much work it is, uh, I think a lot of them decide to try something else. Hmm. Hmm. Well, your background in piano and composition came together uh, a couple of years ago at the festival, uh, 2010, I think. Yeah. When I, you performed your own piano concerto night. That's right. Uh, which you had composed for someone else, a, a really, you know, a talented pianist. Yeah, uh, a brilliant pianist, Jeffrey Kahane. Jeffrey Kahane. Um, and this was reputed to be a very difficult piece. It, it, it was very difficult. <laughs> and and it, I thought it was wonderful that Marin Alsop um, let, me, let me play it. You know, I wanted to do it, but I hadn't really performed in, in years, um, at, at least in that way, you know, to memorize a concerto and play with an orchestra. I hadn't done that in years. And it was a pretty tall order, and um, my son was born during that year, and so I wasn't getting a whole lot of sleep. And anyway, it was it was a kind of a harrowing experience. It was exciting, but the performance, I think, I, something happened in the in the third movement, and I had to stop and start over, which was just a really crazy thing that doesn't happen. You know, if you're someone who plays concertos all the time, you just know how to sort of get back on board and you know just let it go by and keep going and you know, I'd just been practicing at home, and if I stopped, I would just start over. <laughs> so, it was, anyway, I, 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 I'm not sure if that's what people will, will, you know, will remember from that performance, but it was, for me, a really scary moment um, in an otherwise very exciting week, just to be and to be with my, you know, with these musicians who have become my friends at Cabrillo, and to play with them um, and with Marin conducting was really just a terrific experience. You know, I do remember that moment. Um, was it? Was it at the beginning of the third movement, or was it somewhere in the... Yeah, it was, it was, it was at this weird place that you know, never had become... It was a problem, and it wasn't like I had a memory slip. I just sort of stopped. I just sort of got off the track, and um, it was very odd. Well, you know, i got to say, everybody I know felt very warmly toward that moment. Yeah, well, probably, yeah. They you know, feel sorry for you. Well, <laughs> you know, because it was very human, uh, first of all. And, this, and this, two things. I mean, it was very human, and it's something like the the almost inhuman ideal of perfection that right. we imagine in classical music, it can be kind of off-putting. And to see someone actually make a little mistake, and th- and then you just plowed on, I-, I didn't feel like the rest of the performance was tentative at all. You just really took up the challenge and played the rest of it fantastically well. Well, thanks. I mean, you kind of have to, I guess. You know, <laughs> Back on the train, and you know. <laughs> it was very cool. I mean, it's like a reminder: this is a human being. This isn't some machine yeah. up there. And it really is just. Um, I mean, I still want to play the piano, but um, it's just the time it, it takes. You know, I don't really have that time anymore. There were, there have been a couple of um, opportunities that I had to play the concerto over the last two years, and I just I had to um, turn them down because I just thought I've got too much music to write, and I, I don't think it's possible to divide my time enough to do it well. Uh, but 
at least you were able to sort of uh, dust off the old uniform and step on the playing field and, and show yourself that you still had it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like I had it at some of the rehearsals. <laughs> um, it was it was fun. It really was. It's a, it's just a whole completely different discipline. You know, it really is more of a kind of like gymnastics or you know, a sport where you just have to focus and you can't let anything else in. And composing isn't like that. Composing is. It's very different. It's sort of messy. You know, you have to let your mind be a little messy and just and, and be open to different possibilities. And that's the way that the music will eventually become focused in a, in a strange way. But, yeah, performing is, is just a totally a different thing. Um, and it's, it requires the, the mind to work in a different way. And I, had, I think I had just become uh, out of practice with that, that the way that I had to prepare for such a thing. So I, I happen to have uh, permission to play just a little bit from that performance uh, with the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra in 2010 of your Piano Concerto Night. You at the keyboard, um, and this passage comes near the the finale, uh, and um, it's, it's it strikes me as part of what critics meant when they said that you uh, created a very difficult challenge for pianists. So Kevin, that was that was you playing your own piece. Uh, was that as difficult as it sounded? Not actually as difficult as it sounds. Um, it's one of those things that is kind of a trick of the of the piano, where uh, there are some things that the composers like Liszt, for example, did, which they seem very difficult. But yeah, maybe as difficult as some things that Chopin did, which don't sound as difficult. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's one of those things that. Um, it, I mean, it's not easy. Um, it takes some some work to to memorize, certainly, but. Um, it's physically not as demanding as some other. There's some parts in the first movement which are actually very tricky. They might not sound so, but they involve fingerings uh, yeah, that fingering are really hard. And splitting the brain between two different uh, lines, which can be difficult. That passage you just played is really just one line played between two hands. I, I think that's the way, one way in which uh, we folks who don't actually play the instrument sometimes are mistaken. We think fast and lots of notes is the hardest thing of all. Right. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's it's not as difficult as as um, you know. There are passages in Rachmaninoff which are incredibly difficult. The left hand is doing all these pyrotechnics, and you really can't hear it. It's it's covered by the strings or whoever's accompanying. You just hear the melody played by the the fourth and fifth fingers, while the other fingers of the the right hand are doing all these crazy things that you can't hear that well either. So um, that those are the really those are the real tough passages that you practice like crazy, and sometimes the rewards aren't, aren't as great as you'd like. 
Those were the parts that drove uh, Jeffrey Rush mad. <laughs> Probably. And, and Probably. In yeah. that movie, what was it? I can't remember the movie, but he's a pianist. Like Shine. Right, Shine, Shine. Where he's trying to play Rachmaninoff's third, right? Third concerto, yeah. yeah. I played that in school. It is just mainly <laughs> difficult. It's just long, actually. Each con- each movement could be a concerto by itself, and then you've got three of them. It's it's just huge. <laughs> oh boy. Well, Kevin, I thought I'd play something a little different because we've we've been playing um, orchestral uh, or large scale works, but you've done a lot of chamber works as well, and. Um, Here's an interesting piece I found. Uh, I have to pick from among the things that have been commercially recorded, uh, and you have a much larger body of work, you know, some of which hasn't yet been recorded. But this piece had such an interesting name, uh, I was drawn to it right away, and then also an interesting selection of instruments. And uh, it's called And Legions Will Rise, and it's for marimba, violin, and clarinet. That's a piece I wrote, I think, in 2001 um, for marimba's Makoto Nakura, um, and the, uh, that was for him, but the other performers involved, the clarinetist Todd Palmer, the violinist Yayoi Toda, and they premiered it in Japan, and it's one of those pieces that I thought, yes, it's an unusual combination of instruments, uh, instruments marimba, violin, and clarinet. I said, you know, well, I'll do this for Makoto. I've, I love working with him. I've written several pieces for him, and I'll write him another. I didn't think the piece would be performed that much, and it turns out it's maybe my most performed piece. Um, a lot of marimbists are looking for new work, and this is a real showpiece for not only the marimbists but all three of the instruments. And so it's um, it's a it's a virtuoso piece um, for all three, kind of concert ending or at least half of a concert ending piece. The title it sounds like it comes from a poem, but it doesn't. Um, I just wanted it to sound like it came from a poem, <laughs> and uh, it, it's just sort of about. I, I imagine, you know, when you're confronted with some kind of tragedy in your life, that you that you have these sort of forces with, working with inside of you, which sort of rise up and do battle, you know, to kind of overcome overcome the, this crisis. And um, so that's the end legions. The, the legion. I sort of imagine like this epic film, you know, where you've got like thousands of troops all lined up, <laughs> and it's a, it's a very strange image and one that I had trouble just. Um, describing to Makoto when he was trying to describe it to the Japanese newspapers um, and trying to translate what I was saying. I couldn't really make sense of it, but hopefully it makes some sense. Uh, Yeah, so I thought I'd just play uh, a small excerpt from this piece, and legions will rise again for marimba, violin, and clarinet. Kevin, you said you composed that back in 2001, did you say? I believe so, 2001, in the summer. Um, and, the, and the section we heard, quite beautiful. Uh, again, we can hear your heart coming through. Oh. <laughs> well, um, that, the piece begins in a more 
reserved way, sort of a meditative way, with this very simple uh, three-note motive, which is sort of it rises and then it falls below the first note. So like, and that is the basis behind almost everything in the in the piece. And it, it's for me still, uh, you know, these days, even what, 12 years later, I like to come up with something very simple and kind of fundamental and see where I can where I can push that uh, in terms of different vocabularies within one piece and so that it'll it'll find itself the motive or the theme will <clears throat> find itself in various contexts through the piece and that was um, a kind of dreamy contrapuntal um, context that's very near the opening of the piece um I made mention of the fact that, you know, uh, among your large body of work, only certain pieces have yet been recorded. And that's another difference between so-called popular music and so-called classical. You know, the performances of your pieces can be very rare. Uh, it takes a lot of work to put together an orchestral performance or even a chamber performance. And then uh, the whole business of recording in that world is is tricky and recordings are few and far between. So a large amount of your work doesn't get recorded or gets recorded seldom, and therefore, you know, the only time to hear it is, uh, you know, in sort of one-off performances. Yeah, that's unfortunate, and I've I've kind of been late to the game. Um, I haven't been so smart and savvy with you know putting together uh, recording opportunities. It is possible to record, um, but it's very uh, it's difficult and it's very expensive. And um, you know there is a, the first CD that's entirely my music is coming out this September on Harmonia Mundi Records. It'll include the Symphony Number no. Four uh, with Marinalsop and the Baltimore Symphony, as well as two new choral pieces. Actually, my first choral pieces um, for the really incredible uh, Austin, Texas-based chorus Conspirare, led by Craig Hella Johnson. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to, to make that happen, but it really does take some persistence. And there will be more recordings um, coming out. It's something that I'm working toward. You know, as, as a piece is commissioned, I'm already looking for the opportunity to, to record it. And I'm thinking that a lot of the pieces that have been unrecorded, a lot of these big orchestra pieces, will eventually uh, become recorded. Um, hopefully also the flute concerto, the new piece. So if it's a chamber piece, um, there's a new chamber disc, uh, which will be coming out in a couple of years. It's not as expensive to, to put together, but as as you said, you know, a lot of my my work is orchestral, and so that becomes difficult to record. Mm-hmm. Well, in the meantime, uh, people in our listening audience can hear a new work of yours performed live this coming Friday, August second, at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. Kevin, it has been great talking to you again. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure for me, too. And you can learn more about the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music at cabrillomusic.org. You're tuned to 88.9 KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio. And as we have done for many years running at KUSP, we will again be broadcasting live from the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium for the opening night concert of the Cabrillo Festival. That is coming up this Friday, August 2nd. Our coverage starts at 7 p.m. I'll be uh, co-hosting that with uh, Bonnie Jean Primch, so I hope you join us then. I am Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. And uh, next up, another composer whose work is part of that uh, Cabrillo Festival opening night concert, Derek Burmel. He's made a name for himself both as a composer and clarinetist, 
who has been described as staggeringly eclectic. In addition to a background in Western classical music, his other influences include jazz, klezmer, Brazilian choro, hip-hop, Balkan folk music, and many other world music traditions. In fact, uh, the piece of his that he'll be conducting at this year's Cabrillo Festival is based on music from Ghana, West Africa. It's called Dust Dances, and here is Derek Burmel describing it. It's a 10-minute orchestral work, and it's based on the West African jile, which is a xylophone uh, or kind of like a marimba-like instrument that is prevalent in northwestern Ghana and uh, the south of Burkina Faso and also in Ivory Coast. It's a 14 or sometimes 18 key instrument that resembles a western marimba. The instrument's made from a kind of wood that's like mahogany and it's bound with animal hide. Each key underneath has its own gourd resonator which is made from a dried fruit, a gourd, and it has holes punched in it uh, over which are seared these crushed, flattened spider webs. And the spider webs uh, over the holes create a buzzing membrane as the keys are struck. So, so that's the basis for the piece. So really just an easy translation from what you just described to an orchestra. <laughs> Well, that's that's the idea is to translate this this instrument, which is not tuned to a Western scale, uh, onto the orchestra to kind of map that onto orchestra. That was my challenge, and I like to always have a challenge when I'm writing an orchestral piece. So that was my challenge, and I wrote this piece 20 years ago. And you studied the jile in Ghana. I spent about four months over there, and I went to work with a particular teacher, a guy named Baru, who's a farmer, but also makes and plays the xylophone. So I went over for a period of time to his village, which was called Laura, L-A-W-R-A, and I just spent time learning the xylophone and um, learning about the songs, learning the rhythms and the melodies and a lot about the culture. I wanted to give our listeners just a little taste of what this uh, Ghanaian xylophone called Jile sounds like. And I found this duet by, uh, and I'm probably going to mispronounce their names, but Komke Jangban and Amba Patrick. It's called uh, Bewa Number One. What you're hearing are are probably two Jilly players who are sitting opposite each other, and that happens all the time. It happens in recreational music. You hear the, you know, folks come home from farming or whatever their job is. You know, most people are farmers up in the north of Ghana, and they play xylophone together. And the same would be true at a funeral where you'd have two Jilly players seated opposite each other who'd play, and they really play for hours until they're exhausted at a funeral, and then somebody else will just come in and substitute. So there's constant music going on. 
And yes, what you played is, is exactly the type of music, except that you would have heard, you know, people laughing and dancing and singing in the background and chickens and all kinds of things. <laughs> you are a clarinet player. What attracted you to that instrument, which seems about as far away from the world of the classically trained clarinet as you could go? Well, you know, the first album I ever had was Benny Goodman. Uh-huh. And uh, my, my grandmother got it for me when I was about seven years old. And I really, I loved uh, listening to it. And I started to play jazz at quite an early age, got very interested in Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, Coltrane, you know, all kinds of folks, Miles Davis. And I started really listening to jazz, playing a lot of jazz. And so... Um, I think one of the reasons I was so interested in learning more about African music was because, you know, jazz is a hybrid with African rhythm, many aspects of, of African music improvisation, and, um, you know, formally there's a lot of links to African music, as well as to European music. Um, harmonically, there are influences and, and contrapuntally, but I was really interested, but I knew about European classical music, but I was interested in the other side of jazz, which was African music. And so to me, it was a place I always wanted to go. And, uh, and, and eventually when I found a way to pay for it, you know, to take a trip over there, I, I went. And I, I guess I was in my early 20s when I went over there. So now you've brought the two together uh, in this piece, Dust Dances. And uh, I think I'll play just an opening segment from that. So that was just uh, an opening excerpt from Dust Dances, this 10-minute piece that was based on the uh, Ghanaian jile. We heard this um, this rhythm that the strings start out with, and then um, flutes come in, and then there's this polyrhythmic texture added uh, by the brass. Uh, are you sort of duplicating parts that would be played by different um, xylophones? Well, you know, the thing about the orchestra is it, is so different than, than having two percussion instruments because it has a million colors. What's tricky on, in the orchestra is rhythm because is, is, you know, getting the musicians to groove in different rhythms, that's tough in an orchestra. And composers have tried all kinds of ways to make that happen, some successful, some not as successful. Uh, but, but, of course, what you get when you make the translation to orchestra is a whole world of color and all the different instruments and what that means. So I think my, you know my challenge was was to to get the same you know get the rhythmic flow, and uh, the real benefit was to get the beautiful colors that you get out of an orchestra. Mm-hmm. So um, so just there, yeah, sure you heard the the strings and then uh, the rest of the orchestra come in, some of the winds and the horns, and then you hear the trumpets come in with that polyrhythm four against three. Right, which is a great effect, and it's real common in African music. Right, and uh, that main song the, is, is actually a funeral song called Sanyir Chene Dakpol, which means my father's house is empty. 
And the, the, the whole piece really just progresses from one song to the next. Um, right after you have that opening, it goes into another song, which is called Don Domonye Kaule, which means, actually it means, I am the greatest Jill player. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bragging song. <laughs> oh, from a funeral to a bragging song. Yeah. There's also a funeral praise song, which is called Kukur Gandabye. Uh, and then there's also a song called Lobopo Nawa Dabin Kobo, which is about a story of a woman who bought some food at the market, and she only paid one penny, and she thought she got a good deal, but when she opened it up, she saw that it was just feces. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the songs are kind of making fun of people, or the, some of them are funny, some of them are serious, you know. Uh, they're all different kinds of songs, and I was trying to put put them together into you know in a way that was both kind of narrative, but also uh, showed some of the ties between the songs. Mm. So uh, let's hear a little bit more from this piece, and we're going to go toward the end where the the orchestra is interpreting uh, that song you just mentioned. Uh huh. Th- this one about the bargain shopper who doesn't get quite what she thinks she's paying for. Another segment of uh, Dust Dances, a work for orchestra composed by my guest today, uh, Derek Burmel. And uh, it will be conducted by Derek Burmel on the opening night of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music for 2013, coming up on August 2nd. That's Friday night. And you can learn more about all of the events at this year's Cabrillo Festival at their website, cabrillomusic.org. And just a reminder that KUSP will be covering the opening night concert. That is August 2nd, Friday. Uh, starting at 7 p.m. That's when our pre-concert show begins, uh, followed by the concert at 8 p.m. And I'll be there with my colleague, Bonnie Jean Primsch. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com.